And I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Look, the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power with no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who have already died more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one that has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all that, that I saw that all toil and all skill in the work come from one person's envy of another. This is also vanity and a chasing after wind. Fools fold their hands and consume their own flesh. Better is a handful with quiet than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, the case of solitary individuals without sons or brothers, yet there's no end to all their toil, and their eyes are never satisfied with riches. For whom am I toiling, they ask, and depriving myself of pleasure? This is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up the other, but woe to the one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who will no longer take advice. One can indeed come out of prison to reign, even though born poor in the kingdom. I saw all the living who moving about under the sun follow that youth who replaced the kings. There was no end to all those people whom he led. Yet those who will come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a chasing after wind. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. Better a palmful with the settlement than with two fistfuls of labor and a shepherding of the wind is the words that Ecclesiastes has for us today. This is our, uh, I checked today, um, fourth Sunday in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I was joking with Eddie and Tony before the service that I'm like, okay, I think I've got Ecclesiastes down. We must be at least halfway, and we are not near halfway, and so we have more um, as the, the end of the book says that the, that the words of the teacher are a goad, a spear uh, from a shepherd to keep us moving, to keep us doing that way, and they poke and they hurt. And so we have more poke and hurt to keep ourselves sort of engaged. Um, everybody's looking at me like, this is not the inspiration you want at the start of a sermon. Um, uh, but that's where we are um, in the book of Ecclesiastes, sort of walking through this journey. And I was, I was thinking through, like, what have we, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. What have we covered so far in this meaningless journey so far? In the first sermon, we sort of um, covered the, 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 the intro and this sort of poem that makes up the intro. And we gained sort of two um, vocabulary words that I get questions about because... Um, 
I just kept going with them, but I explained them once and then assumed everybody got them. So I call the author of Ecclesiastes Kohelet. That's the Hebrew word right at the end of, of that, right when he seems to start speaking. At the, I think it's like 117. He says, I, the teacher, perhaps in your translation, I, the gatherer, um, the one that shall be read that Sunday, I, the congregant, um, uh, and so I, I keep calling the, the, the writer, the one who's speaking for the majority of the book, Kohelet. Now, many people are familiar with um, the claim that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and I've said that, that there's reasons why scholars think that he did. and re- Well, there's ma- mainly reasons today why they think he didn't, but that is neither here nor there. Um, you can hear it as Solomon. Certainly the book kind of wants you to hear it as Solomon, although today's reading where the king says, oppression is everywhere and nobody does anything about it would certainly undercut um, a king at the time. You wouldn't, you wouldn't remain king long if you said, look, I see all this and I don't want to do or, or don't see any point in doing anything about it. But, um, but Kohelet is, is that, that Hebrew phrase. And in the Jewish Bible, the book is called Kohelet. In the English Bible, it's called Ecclesiastes, which is the, um, the Greek word for Kohelet. Um, and so I forget which one. I was looking at a different translation this week that sort of had him as the leader. It was the leader of the congregation. Um, and so when we think of the Greek word for church, which a lot of Christians know, ecclesia, uh, the called out is the Greek word for the church. Ecclesiastes is this leader of the church. And one of the challenges, and we'll, we'll see it a bit at the end of the sermon, but one of the challenges for me has been hearing Jesus as Kohelet, like as one who, because this is canon, um, it's part of the Bible, and it tells the one story of God's redemptive dealings with us, how does Jesus say these words? In what tones and what places? But then the reverse is, is reading parts of the New Testament and saying, you know, um, I've seen these words said, and it's weird because it's, it's, it came to me in seminary. We were reading uh, two different books. One, A River Runs Through It, which is a, a lovely short story on, on fly fishing, which now I just, now nobody wants to read it. Um, it did say short, though. Um, and then uh, uh, The Sermon on the Mount. And the way that the professor in, inhabited and spoke the words of The Sermon on the Mount and, and this portion of um, A River Runs Through It made me realize, oh, the tone that I hear these in the way in which they are spoken adds to its meaning. So if you hear the Sermon on the Mount in the voice of a um, preacher in a jacket with a southern accent banging, the, thi- banging the, the, the pulpit, that sounds a lot different than in a, in a soft and quiet setting. Interestingly enough, I'm not going to say one is right or wrong, um, but, but you have to be aware of how that meaning becomes inlaid in the text. And as, as he was reading it in a very soft tone, I was like, I don't think I've heard Jesus this way, and there's no reason why I should or why I shouldn't have. I mean, uh, we don't know what it sounded like, but it was, it made me, and so even as we look at, at some of these sayings that Jesus has in the New Testament, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough problems of its own, sounds like Kohelet, but we don't hear it, like normally I hear that and I'm like, yeah, that's a happy teaching. Um, but you could also hear it within the voice of the whole of scriptures and hear it as an Ecclesiastes teaching. You think it always is going to be this way, 
but, but live, um, eat and drink and be merry today because tomorrow isn't promised to you. Uh, at one of these Sundays, I think we'll try to hear the Beatitudes that way too, is, is how is Jesus speaking as Kohelet speaks? And that's, that's an attempt to hear canon in an interesting way. And canon is this word for the Bible. I mean, just all that, that the church has decided goes into the Bible. So, um, uh, but that's been a challenge. Anyways, Kohelet, so I'll say Kohelet a lot, and I mean the writer of the book. If you want to go, he means Solomon, great. If you want to say he means the Ecclesiastes guy, also awesome. That's just where we're going with that one. Um, the next word that we, we learned is this word uh, uh, hebel, um, which is translated, this is one of the most reoccurring words throughout the book, which comes as smoke, vapor, vanning, vanity, meaningless, um, it was the message that I found smoke in, which I like that one, is that it's all is smoke, all is vapor, all is trying to grasp at things that are there, but whenever you reach out to grab them, they disappear. They're not permanent in the way that we think they are. Uh, this word shows up again in today's reading, um, but these two, two sort of words, one, the first one I think is important, not just because it's what I'm going to call them and it makes it hard to make sense of the sermon. If you're not following that, you'll be like, who is Kohelet? Is that the guy in the front right? Um, no. <laughs> the, um, so the first, but also the first to hear Jesus as this teacher, the gatherer of the church, the, the congregant, the one who speaks to the community. Um, and then this one, to, to keep in mind that sort of this overarching theme of this book is that most of what he sees from the position of under the sun, which is another popular phrase in the book, from not allowing in perhaps other escape routes from outside. He says, you know, if you look at it this way, this is the way it's going to be. He says, we see it as meaningless, as vanity, as vapor, as smoke. David and I were funny enough talking this week, and one of the, one of the ways that I thought that that for edification, you might read the book of Ecclesiastes as an apology to like a friend or coworker who says, I am happy looking at the world as if there is no other metaphysical or realistic explanation of the world other than what we see and deal with near us. Perhaps that's a person you could sit down and go, well, let's see what looking at everything without reference to any um, goodness, truth, or beauty beyond what we can see under the sun, what's that lead to? Let's journey through the book of Ecclesiastes together. Now they're no longer your friend. Uh, they go to church with you, so they're a congregant with you. No, uh, um, I'm not sure I would recommend that, but that's an interesting way to look at the book, is, is if you want to deny all these other realities that might be pressing upon us, you might end up in the same position as Kohelet. All of this is smoke and vapor and meaninglessness. All of this is, is emptiness. Um, Last week that we had this this passage about what do workers gain for their toil. Um, just a, a quick, oh, I was going through the sermon. So two, the second sermon was he, he tries an experiment in which he sort of tries to seek out the ways in which you might find meaning. So he tries pleasure. He tries building big, beautiful things. Um, he tries uh, wisdom. And he's, he finds that all of these two lead to meaninglessness. This brings us to that classic point where he's like, even if you get it all, you still die. And when you die, you're forgotten, and that's the end. And so he doesn't seem to even think um, 
that that's good. That was the second sermon. Um, the third one, which was last week, there's, there was a key point in there that we, two, two verses we often hear. The first is that, um, that God has set eternity in the heart, that God has set eternity within us, that God has set this, like, this notion that we want to figure out what's going on. It came to me this week is that um, I, I tell jokes fairly often and people don't always get them. Um, but there are people who just don't want to get the joke, right? They're like, uh, you're you, you're not that funny. Even if you explained it to me, it would no longer be funny, so let's move on. Um, what what he, he's saying when he says that he set eternity in our hearts is that we want to get what the world is about. We want to see where God will set things, right? We want to see where meaning comes from. We want to see how all this holds together. And that's that second half is that God has made all things beautiful. Although Hampton, who was here last week, pointed out that I think um, the translation, the net, which he's somewhat in charge of, says frustrating. Because the point is that because God's made it all beautiful, and we in our hearts want to get the joke, and not in this sense the joke, but the story, we can't. And that's frustrating for us. That God has set eternity in our hearts and yet we can't gain the perspective to see it all is frustrating. And so at Kohelet, I've, I've been leaning into um, a little bit more that he doesn't see that this is all going to work out, but I think that might have been an error. I think he, he might actually be seeing, and this is the passage that's the last half of the passage that sort of ties into that. Um, he has made every... Uh, no, this is a passage I was just referring to. Um, the passage, in that passage, he talks about how God will judge everything. But what he's saying is that that's for God, that we don't have access to that. And so what we get when we look at the world is this frustrating thing. And so that was the third sermon. Today brings us to the fourth sermon in the book, where he sort of looks at four different things that frustrate creation. Um, frustrate us in our attempts to sort of make meaning here on the earth. Um, oppression, rivalry, isolation, and government. These are sort of the, the four sort of things that he's going to tackle in chapter four. But before we begin on chapter four, has anybody read the book, um, All Things Shining? All Things Shining? Shining. Um, I was listening to an interview with uh, Cal Newport, who wrote this book called Deep Work and several other books, and Tim Ferriss, who's written out like a bazillion books. I don't know, anyways. But they're talking about this book, All Things Shining. And one of the things that, that, that came out of this discussion was that uh, Tim is a bit of a uh, Kohelet-like figure in this discussion. He's the one saying, you know, why would I need other things outside of what I can see to make sense? Why can't I just go this way? And it, Cal... He's asking Cal because Cal finds meaning in these things beyond. Um, I don't think he's, you know, full Bible-believing Christian that fits in at a church, but he sees, no, you really can't make it up all yourself. And so Tim says, it was a very kind conversation, like, explain to me why you see it that way. And Cal goes to this book, All Things Shining. And what he sees in that book is, is this discussion um, which starts with the novelist David Foster Wallace, is, uh, who gave this famous commencement speech, This is Water. Um, a commencement speech I find somewhat interesting and moving. So he gives this commencement speech, but this is water. But the core of this is water. The, first, it comes from a joke. You're wondering why is the commencement speech called this is water. Um, it's, it begins with the story of two fish swimming, and an older fish swims by, and he says, how's it, t how's it going today? How's the water? 
And the younger fish go, fine, I guess. And then they swim away. And one of the younger fish says to the other younger fish, what the hell is water? Um, uh, the idea that like we exist in things that are always permanent to us, but we never notice them. Um, and so, you know, what's water is a, an interesting question. Is how's the air today? You know, I never really thought about it. Um, how's breathing going? Um, you know, these sort of things. And so that's, that's sort of the story that begins it. But, but what Foster Wallace contains within that is you have to make choices in this world. And you can choose to operate by the default setting, which is always frustrated and sees just your own interests, or you can choose to expand yourself and see um, things beyond that. It's, it's a good commencement speech and, and interesting at that. But, but what the two authors focus on that wrote the other book, sorry, that they're talking about in the podcast, this is going to get complex, <laughs> um, I'm realizing. Uh, the two writers of this book, All Shiny Things Focus On, is, is that, that choosing and just being in the default and not having any, any other material turns out to be frustrating, turns out to be limiting, turns out to be closing yourself off to other avenues of meaning. And so the argument of that book, which is also not a Christian book, is sort of how to regain the classics, how to read the classics again. Um, chapters on Homer, and I believe a chapter on one of the books of the Bible, but sort of on reclaiming all of these things. That's, that's the point of that story. But what happens, incidentally, to David Foster Wallace in the end, and this is they're classic scholars, so I don't think they realize the in, inappropriateness, perhaps, of using this illusion, is that David Foster Wallace commits suicide at, at, at I think, 45 or something like that, young. Like, and part of the reason they pick him is because this is the classic sort of uh, um, emptiness, right? Like, trying to make it all yourself, trying to not have anything out you, leads to this emptiness, this sort of way in which life is unsustainable. Now, I haven't read that whole book. I listened to a discussion about the whole book. I'm hopeful that they realize that suicide contains multiple other avenues and that using him as the foil in the book might work creatively but is not the kindest thing per to perhaps do or is at least... Um, but then again, they're classic scholars and like everybody kills themselves in the classics. So it's, it's a bit of a weird um, thing. So maybe that's their numbness there. Anyways, the point being is under the sun is what David Foster Wallace tried to do and these authors are saying, perhaps we should expand our meaning. But what they pick at the end of the book to ground meaning in is skillful labor, work, creative good work. Kohelet comes for them today. That, that work itself can't do that either. And we live in this age um, predominantly of, of, of workaholism or, or sort of what, what Kohelet will call folding the hand, like just not doing anything. We have these two sort of balances in them. We have workaholics, people who work all the time. We exist in a society of, of what Joseph Pieper, the guy we'll talk about at the end of the sermon, called total work. Um, and and what, what people argue is vacation is not an exception to a society of total work. Um, having vacation is just... Um, like a parody of rest and relaxation um, because it doesn't allow for the actual um, resting to take place, the, the, the notion of that. So that's a bit of where the sermon is going because we're going to end back around to that thought. So um, we'll go through the four things now and then work towards that end. Um, the first, I want to do the last one first, government. 
Um, or as I was thinking about this, government was one that came from one of the commentaries, but what actually occurred to me is it's kind of more like leadership today. Um, that there's a better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows to heed a warring. The youth may come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. And you can maybe read in there, fell in love with the next king's successor. Um, this too is meaningless vapor, a chasing after the wind, a shepherding of the wind. Um, it begins with this way. What he's talking about here is that the people grow disenchanted with the person leading them, and they fall for the person who's coming next. And by the time that person comes, they're ready for the next person to come. Now, I'm a pastor, many of you are in other careers, and, and I'm at this age where like, you're young, we don't listen to you. And then there's going to be a time where it's like you're old, that's kind of bad advice. And if you're in this age that I'm in, a six-month period exists in the middle where it's like, oh, you're trusted, we'll listen to you. So don't waste that six months you have where it's like, uh, this person is in their life, they're confident and secure, we can listen to them now. Um, and that the sad part I'm worried about is that six months where it's like, I don't know, we should probably give them a shot, is going to be, I'm going to realize it was there after it happened. Um, uh, and then I won't be able to speak that. But I think we see this in a lot of our workplaces and places we have leadership in today, is that the person always in charge is kind of like, we can't wait till they leave. This is principals often in schools, managers in work, this, that, and the other. And it seems like there's a younger person there who were like, that's the person, when they lead, we'll all be happy. And what happens is, is that person gets to lead, and even if the people who wanted that person to lead are happy for a little bit, People come after them, and they're not happy with that person. They have their own new person who they want to lead. Um, and this uh, is interesting because this one, I think, is so real to our world. Um, and my hope is that, that Christians, as we hear this and other scriptures, is that we can end sort of this, um, uh, I call it the fetishization of youth culture. Like that if you're young, you might have something new and exciting to add to us. Um, when in fact, that often isn't there as much. Like, we look more for competency, perhaps, than just like who's not in charge. Although one of the things that came to me as I was thinking through this portion of the scripture was, uh, what's the land line from uh, The Dark Knight? You either uh, die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. <laughs> um, uh, I think that's a bit of what the king is going through here. He can either, it would have been easier for him to perhaps die while he was still in that promised age because then he'd die a hero, but once you're in charge, you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Um, and, and Kohelet wisely sees this idea of that we can, two sides of that, we as the people who are seeking this king can somehow find happiness there, turns out to be meaningless because we never are. Um, uh, this is the promise of our government leaders, too. It's like they'll be great and we're disenchanted before they even take office. Um, uh, but the second is for leaders. Um, many of you have leadership competency in your work and stuff like that. To look at it and to say, you know, how do I shepherd this well? Um, because it's pretty much written into creation that people will want the person after me, and that's okay. 
Um, but how do I do this well and not think that this is what lasts forever as well, that we have our own limits with that. Um, so that's the fourth thing, the last couple of verses there. Um, the next one I want to look at is uh, isolation. We'll go backwards um, uh, for this next one. This is the, the, the next thing that he talks about. After, and I saw something else under the sun in the place of judgment. Oh, wrong one. Um, And I, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. Here, Kohelet looks out and looks at people who toil alone with no other community, no other friendship, no other this, and he sees that even if success comes for them, they find that they sort of are working themselves to death with no enjoyment to come for it. They have this way of continuing in toil. This is, this is assertive um, two things, both for our world, is, is both like there are people who exist like this. I've known people like this, and, and they've churned up marriages along the way, or they've thrown off other things, or they are just single, and they keep striving, striving, gaining more and more. Um, but they eventually, there's cracks that come in. And at certain times, particularly as a pastor, I'll hear from them, but, but at other moments where they're like, um, the dawning on them, for whom am I toiling? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Comes upon them, and it keeps them awake at times. Um, we see people like this. I think in our world, we have another person like this who's, who's the workaholic who never takes the time to come home early, who never takes the time to be present when they are home. I mean, the, the smartphone pretty much has made us capable of work all the time. Um, uh, it keeps buzzing, emails come. We're always sort of aware of this constant thing hanging over us. And so these people are unable. And I mean, when I, when I describe it that way, sometimes I think these people, I'm like, me and most of the people I know are, are not maybe as bad as this person, but this temptation exists there to keep toiling, to keep depriving, but never really wondering why. This too is meaningless. A miserable business. And Kohelet here actually has a bit of a solution. He says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If you work with somebody, you can accomplish more. If either one falls down, one can help the other up. And so he's got these benefits from finding community. And, and he's now here talking in the context of labor, but I think we see this context within families and with lives, is, is that two are better than one. If one of us falls down, the other can help us up. The more we isolate ourselves, even if we have dependence, in the classic tax term, um, um, if we have people around us, um, we can still isolate in such a way that we don't receive help when we fall down, sometimes as a source of pride, but sometimes because we've, we've not made the relationships that are near to us reciprocal in that way. Um, we've made them just fair exchanges, but really um, 
this is partially why I don't let people write their own vows at their weddings. I mean, I'll let them share their own vows at a point in the wedding, but we always did the traditional ones. Because sometimes when they write them themselves, they sound like, I'll love you as long as I love you, and things are the way that they are and never change. I'm like, well, that, was, uh, they change tomorrow. Um, so that's very, they, sh they, they change at the end of this ceremony. Um, you're a different person on the other side. So whatever was before, um, is going to be different from here. Uh, um, so anyways, that they, we, we exist in many relationships in this way of like, sort of like, you know, you're great while you're here, but at the second you become a burden, no uh, helping each other. There was a, I think it was Thomas Jefferson or Ben Franklin who said the first thing you should do when you move into a new neighborhood is ask one of your neighbors for assistance. Not assist them, but ask them for assistance because then it sets up this sort of reciprocal relationship of care and mutuality. Um, so if you're with two, when one falls, the other can help the other one up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. And if two lie together, they will keep warm. Now, there are some people who think that this is an allusion to marriage, and then that cord of three strands is not quickly broken at the end is the child that is the fruit of marriage. Um, you can see that passage at the end. That's pretty much not likely it. Um, people in this society, as you traveled about, and it, notice it started with one person falling down, um, you would share beds to stay warm throughout the night. Um, this was survival and care, not um, sexuality per se, although it's, it's a nice way to look at it. Uh, I wouldn't say that that doesn't have meaning either, that if you find warmth there to have a child, then to have that third strand is is a nice fulfillment of that. But it seems like it's more just talking about general relationships that as you faced exposure, uh, that's what you die from when you die from sort of not having proper worth exposure. It's better to have one with you to keep you warm. Most of us are terrified of exposure. Um, not that kind. I don't think we worry about freezing to death in the modern world as much. But the exposure of self. Um, to, to say what we mean in a meeting, to be who we are, to this, that, and the other. And to do so alone is terrifying and leads to anxiety and depression and all sorts of troublesome things and isolation. But to do so with somebody else, we have warmth for the night to make it through whatever exposures might come to us. Um, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves easily. This moves from um, an error that we've made along the way to circumstances of environment that come to us regardless of whatever else, to the final one, to opposition that purposely uh, comes against you. Um, if, in, in, in this world, I mean, uh, in this world you will have troubles, is Christ teaching for us in John. In this world you will face opposition. And what he says is, what Kohelet and Christ will say too is he sends his disciples out in two rather than one, um, twos and threes rather than one, is that it's better for you to be with someone. Because you're easily power overpowered and isolated when you go as your isolated one into battle. Somebody confronts you along the way. But if you have two, then you can make it through. And a cord of three stands is not easily broken. Another classic line we know is that, and it, uh, there's a really nerdy explanation for that that I'll skip. 
Um, <laughs> it, it comes from the Enuma Elish with the Epic of Gilgamesh. There's a, a notion there where they're going to cut somebody loose, and they say, don't cut it because it's a cord of three strands and it will not be uh, easily broken. Kohelet uh, is very knowledgeable about what exists in his world, which is good for us. Um, I think sometimes we picture scripture as not containing anything of anything else around it, but Kohelet is one who's willing to take wisdom from where it resides and then sort of use it in his own way, too. Uh, the context changes. Um, we'll jump all the way to the beginning for oppression next. I'll read it from this, this translation I have here. I saw, again, I saw all oppressed people that are appearing under the sun. They are the tears of the oppressed and no one comfort, and there is no one, there is no one comforter for them. Yes, they have the, the hand of their oppressors is the energy, and there is no comforter for them. I have extolled the dead people who have already died, more than living people who were alive. Better than both of them is one who has not yet come into being, because he hasn't seen the bad activity which occurs under the sun. This is, it's up here too, is that I looked at the world and I saw oppression. I saw the oppressed, and there was no one to comfort the oppressed, and there was no one, and the power was on the side of oppressors, and there was no one comforter. This is a hard teaching. This is perhaps the hardest teaching we've confronted so far, because what Kohelet sees when he looks out and sees the oppressor and oppression is fact. He does not say, and so Israel, let us rise up and become the comforter of the oppressed. And it, if this comes from a, a time when Israel is oppressed, which it, some people think it does, um, they are the oppressed. And there is no one comforter for the oppressed. There's no one to come for that. And we see this in our world today. We see oppression and the power that sort of comes along with that. So much for that, um, if you're familiar, there's a, there's a school of theology called liberation theology that sort of used to aim for the, the, the advancement of a human society so much that it was transfigured more towards the kingdom. That was really popular in the 60s and 70s. Uh, in 2010, liberation theologians think about more in the tone of Ecclesiastes. What is the comfort we can find in the moment? Because the transformation of the world seems to lie in some other time or place. We will not bring about the transformation of the world. And incidentally, attempts to do so in the last century have not gone well. Um, and so what do we do with this impression thing? Even as he continues, you know, I declared that the dead, uh, I declared that the dead who have already died are happier than the living. So I was thinking about this, is that this is probably the proper lens to look at oppression. There's this movement, and in, in we're alive, so that's a difference, right? But what, what he says is that to see this, you're, you're better off dead, because it's a hopeless situation. And what I find in this is this reminder that there are times in my life, and I think I see it more taking root in the world today, in which the oppressed people become a statement about me and how good I can be to care for them. 
that the compassion that I feel for the oppressed can somehow be remedied through, and, and let's pick on Tom's shoes, perhaps, by me buying a pair of shoes so that somebody else receives a free pair. And this is not to say that Tom's shoes is terrible and nobody should do it. But what Kohelet sees rightfully when he sees oppression is he says, it would be better if I had never seen this at all. I shouldn't make oppression in a statement about my own compassion. Because what happens is, is we have this tendency, and like I said, it's existed within me, to see that like, what I can do about oppression becomes about me, and then it becomes, oppression becomes another instrument of my own narcissism and self-obsession. Um, I can really begin to think, people exist to be oppressed so that I exist so that I can care for them. And what Kohelet correctly sees is it's better that people don't exist to be oppressed. That doesn't seem possible, so it's better that you would have never seen it. That you would have never been born or not been born yet because there is so much evil under the sun. The church rightfully is called into the repair of the world and care for neighbor and love for one another and to repair the cracks that we can see where the oppressors operate. But we can jump too quickly to that being um, a balm for our own existence outside of oppression. We can say that it's good that that exists so I have something to care for so I don't feel as bad about all that I have. He looks and sees oppression and asks, perhaps non-existence for me would be better than this. As I said, this is, I think, the hardest and darkest teaching we've confronted so far in Ecclesiastes because it names properly how dark oppression and evil is in the world and how it's not always about us remedying it. The next teaching, <laughs> the one that we'll end with, um, Rivalry, and I saw all the toil and achievements that spring from one person's envy of another. Um, envy in this context pre predominantly means um, negative. Uh, uh, envy is not always used negatively, the, the Hebrew word, but in here it sort of means one person's envy is sort of this way of, of which we toil and strive to achieve more. That it's, uh, it's the Hebrew version of keeping up with the Joneses. Um, how much of our work comes from this envy of trying to keep up with another person. This too is meaningless, Havel, chasing after the wind. And so he looks and he sees how much of, of, of our work is about envy, about consuming, about moving more. And incidentally, looking back to the oppression passage, it also may be not, it also may be why nobody is there to care for the poor's, the, the oppressed tears which is another sadder realization on the last passage. Uh, no one is there for the oppressed tears because I saw all the toil and achievement that spring from envy. We were busy chasing more and more meaningless after the wind. And so this is, this is going back to that book I talked about at the beginning. This, th it has this, um, the achievement passage, has this notion of skilled labor, right? So Kohelet is naming that all this toil and achievement, as the authors of the book said, skilled craft might be the answer. He says, all of this just really comes from envy of another person. And it, this, too, is another chasing after the wind. 
He sees emptiness in this sort of continued quest to get better and better and better. But what he, he, he ends with here, and um, I will have then tackled every part of the text. Yes, great. That was the goal. Um, uh, I think is the answer to that. Because he says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. So far with Kohelet, he's proclaimed, like, do your honest day's work. And so here he says again, um, you know, if you think the answer is to fold your hand, to rest your hand, to, to lay it across your chest and do nothing, destruction is what awaits you. His, his sort of um, dark view of humanity does not suggest better to do nothing. His, his better to, to never have born or perhaps be dead, I think, has, has a bit of tongue-in-cheek in it as well, in which he's, he's seen it. So it's better to not have seen to... Anyways, um, the dimwit in this translation here captures something that's missing often in English translations too, is the dimwit folds his hand and eats his own flesh. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. That when we close ourselves off to not working at all, we become these people who just consume themselves. There's a bit in his imagination that, that work creates meat, but what the fool's meat that he eats is just the consumption of his body wasting away. The answer is not to do nothing. But the answer, and it sort of makes, I think, a helpful middle for the sermon, and, and I think for the passage too, is better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. What he says is, better one hand in rest than two handfuls of continually toiling. So the answer is not to fold your hands and do nothing, but to have a hand full of rest, of tranquility, and to have one hand full of the toil that's needed for life. But the answer isn't not doing anything. And so how is it we are to exist in this way? How is it is that we come to this place? Um, the escape I want to suggest that, that they missed in the book um, about reading the classics is one that I think um, is captured in the quote on the back of the bulletin from, from jo- Joseph Pieper. But, but this is a quote from another book called Overworked. And it says, to the Greeks living a life of leisure, my, I want to argue for the last bit of the sermon, very short, that leisure is what it means to have a hand in tranquility. Um, and leisure is not vacation, and it's not doing nothing. Um, to the Greeks, living a life of leisure was the highest aim of a human being. True leisure, the Greeks believed, freed them from the drudgery of work, not only refreshed the soul, but also opened it up. Leisure opened up the soul. It was a time and space where one could be most fully human. I thought of my daughter, whom I found one day sitting in a chair, hugging herself, smiling. I just love feeling my soul, she said. Don't you? Most days, honestly, I feel like I didn't have the time. It is as if Ovid said, in our leisure we reveal what kind of people we are. What kind of person did that make me? It's not that I just didn't want to refresh my full soul, as I always felt too busy to get it. Two hands full of toil is the way that most of us exist in the modern world. But what does it mean to take up leisure again? 
The quote from the back of the bulletin is from the Catholic um, writer Joseph uh, Pieper. Um, and he says, leisure is not only possible when we are at one with ourselves. We tend to overwork as a means of self-escape, of a way to justify our existence. We try to escape in this way. And what he says in these lectures that make up, there's two lectures that make up this book called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. What Bieber argues is that leisure, and what he seems like he means more correctly is Sabbath, a way in your week and in your daily time of having meaning that's not attached to the totality of work, to not always be in total work. What he suggests is that, that worship in this space is in which our souls are expanded is the escape from having two hands of toil. And so the lectures were titled Leisure as the Basis of Culture. His argument is, is that if you exist in a society that is leisureless, which he th- saw our world moving to in the 1950s after World War II, and he's looking at the reconstruction of Germany, and he's sort of arguing, we can move to this world of total work, or we can remain a human society by embracing leisure again. And this is where we preach to the choir, the only thing I know how to do at Defiance Church, um, is that leisure for him culminates in the worship of God. It's the only thing that says we don't add anything to it, we don't make anything to it. Our work is not the most important part of this, but we come in awe in a place to be gathered to God. Um, so yeah, this, this leisure, I wanted to, to read um, what... Uh, Rachel read to us from the end of uh, chapter 11 of Matthew, but this is from the message. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion or work? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting upon you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. The psalm that Kim read for us today, too, I won't, I won't read that, but is a short summary of this, too, is this is all too haughty for me, so I content myself in God. But as we do every week, we'll end with the words of the parent at the end. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including everything, whether it is good or evil. Let us pray. God, you have called us to hear from Kohelet, what frustrates us in our quest to be human. Oppression, as we see it in the world, leads to this emptiness that asks whether it was worth being here to see it. Rivalry, work, just questing after more, begs the question if we should just fold our hand and do nothing. But Kohelet calls us into having one hand in tranquility while the other goes about its work. 
You point out the isolation that existed in your time and exists in our time as well, and how the bounds of community together might heal us and allow us to be with someone in our moment and in our suffering. Two, we see how leadership becomes this thing in which we might be promised a way out, but just leads to the discontentment you suggest over and over. And so, too, we ask today, God, that this worship may be leisure for us, that being drawn into the worship of you, our souls may be expanded. And in that expansion, may we find that there is life that is not work, life that is tranquility, one that we rest in as you've called us away from those who are weary and tired out, but to come and rest in you. As we learn from your son, may we learn, as translated in the message, the unforced rhythms of grace and learn to have our hand in tranquility as well. I saw this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.